right, everybody. If you can uh, make your way back to your seat, we'll get started here. All right, everybody, grab your seat. We have such a cheerful, happy church. It's awesome. Welcome, everybody. Um, you may notice something different about me. I am teaching with my sling on, which is a story of its own, which I will get to in just a minute. I want to orient you guys here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Creed, What Christians Believe. And really, we've talked about a lot of beauty so far. We've talked about the beauty of God as creator. We've talked about God as a trinity and the beauty of trinity. We've talked about the beauty of gender. We've talked about the beauty of marriage. And we've camped out in Genesis 1 and 2. And today we move into Genesis 3. And it's going to get real ugly. Because we're going to talk about sin today. And uh, it's funny. I've told several people what I was speaking on on Sunday, and they are here, which I'm pleased, because the look they gave me was like, <sighs> this is going to be a happy talk on sin. I, um, so let me, let me uh, tie in my shoulder situation. I had shoulder surgery about five weeks ago, and I just knew when I had my next doctor's appointment that the sling was going to come off because it's just been a pain. I haven't been able to sleep. I have kind of a mild ache all the time. And so I showed up at the doctor's appointment and he said, your shoulder looks great. You're really doing really well. Two more weeks with the sling. And it's like, no. Not only that, but it's time to begin physical torture. I mean, physical therapy. <laughs> and so, and uh, I've worked out all my life and I've never been close to crying when I've worked out, except when I just began physical therapy. But there's a moment between the doctor and I, and my son was there in the room with me. He said, so with the sling, how compliant have you been? <laughs> uh, so that's why I'm wearing the sling today. I finally decided to listen, uh, which I should have been listening to my wife the whole time, just to acknowledge that she was right. And so as I thought, because this has been kind of a hard week for me, I began physical therapy, like I said, and, and so it's like, I'm talking on sin. How can this be like a happy talk? So a cheerful look at sin, I don't know, a, a, a happy look at how screwed up the world is, maybe we call it that. But we all know instinctively that something's wrong with the world, right? I mean, when you read CNN, it's just day after day after day. Whether you hear a story of, of child abuse or sex trafficking or politicians that cannot speak without lying, it's all pervasive. It's everywhere. Everybody instinctively knows something is wrong. And here's why Genesis 3 is so important. Genesis 3 tells us from God's perspective what is wrong with the world. And it isn't politics. It isn't just economics. It is not merely social injustice. All of those things flow from what we find in Genesis chapter 3. 
So I'm wondering how many of you recognize this musician here. Everybody, right? Taking you back in time, spirits in the material world. Carrie's grooving on it right here in the front here. So how many of you guys like the police back then? Yeah, we all just got dated here. That I wasn't alive, thank you. You know, Steve, uh, Sting is very philosophical, and, and, and he asks the question. He makes the, the comment here. Uh, where does the answer lie? There must be another way. And so... It's kind of like every person knows something is wrong with the world. And yet the Christian perspective is unique. The Christian perspective tells us exactly where the problem actually lies. There's an essay uh, written in a newspaper. You guys remember newspapers? I wasn't alive, thank you. <laughs> we may come back to you several times here. Back when they had newspapers, okay, somebody wrote an article about what is wrong with the world, and I love the answer from G.K. Chesterton. He said, what is wrong with the world today? Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And what he's saying there is that every human being uh, struggles with sin, and that is what Genesis 3 tells us so. What I want to do today is I want to walk through Genesis 3 briefly and give you some personal reflections on it. And then we're going to put sin under the microscope. We're going to look at the nature of sin. And then I'm going to tell you why this is really encouraging to me. Like, I love talking about sin. And the reason I love talking about sin, I saw that look on, that, on your face there. The reason I love talking about sin is, is the greater our sin the greater God's love. The greater God's love, the greater our joy. And so looking at myself and seeing what a total wreck I am is deeply encouraging because it shows me a, a greater depth of God's love for us. Maybe I'm a little weird, but that is me. So Genesis chapter 3. Ugh, this is not easy. Um, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of, the, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she gave of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Mm-hmm. Preach. Let that sink in. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened 
and they knew, for the first time, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Isn't that a weird word? Loincloth. Has anyone ever used that word? <laughs> no, never. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman... Whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Um, first blame shift of all time. I hope you noticed that he not only blamed his wife, but he blamed God himself in that. You know, a, a shallow reading of Genesis uh, can be really weird, right? Right? I mean, the two of them were naked, and they did not know that they were naked. How does that work? How is it possible to be naked and not know you're naked? That strikes me as weird. And then when they realized they weren't naked, how did that conversation go? Like, Adam's like, hey, you're, well, actually, you are naked. That's just strange to me. It's strange to me then that there's a talking serpent in this story. I don't know. A little weird in my experience. It's strange to me that Adam is just like many men today, passive, hiding, not showing up. It's strange to me that God says, where are you? I thought you knew all things. And it's strange as the story continues that God banishes them from the garden for such a small, little, innocent thing. That is a shallow reading, and I would like to take us a little deeper. So the first thing I want you to notice here is this. God created the world we long for. God created the world we long for, a world without sin. The, the Hebrew word for, for peace is shalom. And, and shalom is, is not just peace as in the absence of war. Shalom is the way things are supposed to be. And that is the way God made this universe. The biggest question that people outside of the faith tend to have is the question of evil and suffering. And sometimes they will pose the question like, well, so if God's all-powerful, why didn't he make a world without sin? And the answer is, well, he did. He did. God created the world, the world that we long for. I want you to notice a second thing here in Genesis. God created the condition we long for, naked and unashamed. Let this sink in for a minute that that's actually our longing. I'm not just speaking like no clothes. It's a little bit deeper here. We long to live without a mask. We long to be who we are and to know that we're loved and known and understood and, and accepted. We, we long for that. 
And that's the condition that God created. Now, you all know I love Lecrae, and I haven't quoted Lecrae for at least two weeks. Right? So let's look at what Lecrae has to say. I remember the first created being and how he shifted the blame on his dame for fruit he shouldn't have eaten. And now look at us all out of Eden, wearing designer fig leaves by Louis Vuitton, make-believing. Whether it's a desire for success or to, the desire to appear competent, they're just fig leaves covering up what we really experience. Romans 5.12 is a really critical and difficult to understand verse. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, do notice the word man, that God held Adam responsible, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Maybe you've heard the phrase original sin. The Christian teaching is that there is original sin, which was Adam's, but that was passed on to us so that we are born bad, we are born broken, we are born already with our nature twisted, oriented around ourself rather than around God and righteousness. This seems like a difficult thing for some people to follow. It's a difficult thing to accept as if God is somehow being unfair, but it's just the way the world works. I know I've shared this illustration before, but I didn't choose 5-7. I mean, of all the choices, if I could put my hand on the dials, you know, like 6-2, 6-3, no, 5-7. I did not choose this. My parents produced this against my will. And it's just the way the world works. We are the result of someone else's choice. If, if a president one day leads us into war, every single one of us will be at war, whether or not we agree with him. That's just the way the world spins. But it seems like parents, in particular, struggle with this concept a little less. Because when you hold your baby, and you think, this thing is so cute. That lasts about two years. And when they hit the terrible twos, it's like, what is going on? She got this from you. This isn't me. And so parents seem to be able to recognize that, like, we don't teach our kids how to steal or how to lie or how to be selfish. It just is natural to them. That's original sin. Here's a, <laughs> that was totally apparent. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh, man. Third thing I want you guys to see. God gave us free will to live in dependence or independence from him. And it's amazing, it's amazing how twisted we can get when we think about this. Somebody called me yesterday and asked me this question. It's like, why did God create human beings that he know would reject him? That just seems evil of God. And I'll tell you what I told her. Do you understand that whoever frames the question wins the debate? Like, the way that question is framed is very negative toward God. We could frame it differently and say, how is it that free will creatures that are made in God's image that every cell in their body is 
full of information, and information dem demands a designer, an intelligent source, and that we live in a world filled with evidence for God, and that God pursues us and prompts us and tugs on our hearts, and yet we choose not to bow our knee to King Jesus. And so you can look at this in a kind of cynical way toward God, or you can realize God is the most loving parent around to give free will to people who will break his heart. Such is his love. So God gave us free will to live in independence or independence. And the fourth thing here from Genesis is sin brought about what all humans experience, shame and suspicion. Adam and Eve hiding from the God that loves them, just like every single person I've ever met hides from God until we understand his goodness through the gospel of Jesus. So Genesis is deep. It's beautiful. And it tells us precisely the way the world is and what our condition is as well. In the garden, Adam and Eve collectively representing all humanity said, our will be done. And God said, okay. I want to look at the nature of sin. I want to look at this the dark underbelly. I want to examine what, what sin is actually like in the way it is experienced. And the first thing I want to say is it is incredibly complex. It is incredibly complex. Next slide, please. It's described in the scriptures darkness as wrongdoing, as, as a madness, as a kind of insanity, as a, as a trespass, violating someone's property, and as a debt. You know, if you've read the Gospels, you probably remember the story that Jesus gave of a king that was incredibly wealthy, and one of his servants ripped him off and stole from him, representing all of us when we steal from God and live our own lives, the life that God gave us. And the debt that the person stole was $6 billion, and the person representing all of us says to the king, give me patience and let me pay it back. Because we have this instinct that somehow we can do something to merit eternal life. And the king says, no, I will pay the debt myself and declare you forgiven. Sin is further described as crossing a boundary, missing the mark. It's described as a beast waiting to pounce and as a tyrant internally, as a tyrant ruling over us. As one person put it, the scariest monsters are those that live within. So it's extremely complex. Here's the second thing. Sin is essentially the de-godding of God. Sin is essentially saying, my will be done, not yours. You come off of that throne. I want to run my own universe I want to be in control and I'll decide for myself right and wrong thank you anyway back to Lecrae again and I gotta admit I, I Bobby and I were talking about whether Bobby had enough time to wrap this because you know I just can't read this and make it sound right I can't next time Bobby will do this I was created by God, but I ain't want to be like him. See how that just that sounded, that's laughable, right? 
I want to be him, the Jack Sparrow of my Caribbean. And that powerfully expresses the human desire to de-God God. Now remember, the greater the sin, the greater God's love. The greater God's love, the greater our joy. I recognize this about me. That I want to rule my own little universe. It's ugly. And yet I see God knowing me perfectly. And it's like, you want me off the throne. And that's what I'm going to do to come after you through Jesus. It's funny. What do you do when you're offended? Think about that. There's all kinds of answers to that. Biblically... Biblically speaking, what God does when he's offended is he dies for us. Third thing I want you to see. Sin is both alluring and deceiving. Man, it's alluring, isn't it? You're in church. You can nod. Thank you. Thank you. It is alluring. It says, drink me, touch me, fondle me, and I will give you life. So it's alluring, but it's also deceiving because it doesn't come with a little warning label saying, here are the consequences. It's just not the way it works. Next thing. Sin is tranquilizing and self-deceiving. What I mean by tranquilizing is, and some of us have had this experience where you've done something at night, and then the next day you're like, how... How could I have done that, what I did? And it's because sin, like, gave us, like, a narcotic, and we're numb to what is going on. God has graciously uh, created us with a conscience, but he's graciously created us with a conscience that works a specific way. We have the opportunity to, like, turn down the dial because no one can live with themselves No one can live with the knowledge of what we are and what we've done. This is how we get deceived. This is why so many people will say, yeah, I'm a good person. And when I've had that conversation with somebody, I've said, do you mind if I gently challenge you on that? Because as you look at the world, it becomes intensely obvious immediately that humanity is not basically good. We're self-deceiving. Mark, I love what Mark Twain put, said it. Everyone is a moon and has a dark side, which he never shows to anybody. Malcolm Muggeridge, who's a philosopher, um, said the sinfulness of people, the depravity of humanity, is the most controversial and most debated concept in all of philosophy and the most empirically verifiable In other words, there's more evidence for that than any other thing that anyone's going to talk about. Here's the fifth thing. Sin produces hardness and defiance. It is so sad that as we progress through life, our our lives, if we don't know Christ, our heart gets hardened. And so we're not interested anymore in hearing about a God of love or a God of grace because something horrible has happened to our heart, it's become hard. And the same thing can happen for believers, that when we turn the dial of our conscience down, 
Like the first time I knew it was wrong. The second time I thought it was wrong. By the third time, it's like, I'm not sure if it's wrong or not. Because our conscience becomes hardened as we become defiant. I'm interested if anyone knows who this next person is. Anyone? He does look like that. Exactly. It's not. Uh, It's a guy named George Martin who... um, was the main producer of the Beatles records. He's actually referred to as the fifth Beatle. And this is what he had to say. The true horrors of human history derive not from orcs and dark lords, but from ourselves. Isn't that interesting to hear people from all different walks of life speak so honestly about our nature? So here's the sixth thing. Sin is infectious and progressive. It's like a disease that affects every system. It's like all of the different systems of our body break down. Let me explain what I mean. Our mind gets darkened. It's amazing the philosophies and the concepts that we human beings create in order to keep God at a distance because our mind is darkened and we literally cannot think straight when it comes to spiritual topics. Our desires are twisted. We end up desiring things that are going to destroy our lives. And we don't desire the thing that can save us. Our will gets affected. We cannot, we literally cannot come to God without him moving on us. Because our will is just broken and it doesn't work. So this, in big theological language, is called total depravity. Total depravity. Total depravity means the entire absence of holiness, not the highest intensity of sin. A totally depraved man is not as bad as he can be. Like, we could do much worse. But he has no holiness that is no supreme love for God. So the Christian, and this is so encouraging to me, in my twisted state of mind, that I can say, yes, I'm depraved. Every part of my being has been affected, but God has responded by moving after me in love. God knows the deepest parts and loves me anyway. Freud, you think about the experience of a psychologist that has sat in the office with thousands of human beings. And here's what Freud had to say. Man is a wolf. Who has the courage to dispute it in the face of all the evidence of his own life and in history? Which brings us to the last thing. Sin is polluting and wearying. I remember when I became a Christian, on that day I felt clean. I don't know if I could have put it so clearly, but I felt clean, like something had been washed. And before we come to know Christ, our sin pollutes our soul, and it's heavy. It's just heavy to carry. We, We become weary of it. That's why David, as a believer, said in Psalm 32 that his body is weary because of the experience of his sin. Einstein, who can dispute with Einstein 
perhaps the greatest mind of all time, and yet this is what he had to say. It's easier to change the nature of plutonium than it is to change the nature of the evil spirit of man. Now, now just, let's just pause for a minute. Think about all the different quotes we've had here. We've gotten from Moses and the Bible to Lecrae, a rapper. We've gone from Jesus to Mark Twain. We've gone from psychology, Freud, to philosophy, Malcolm Muggeridge. And we've arrived at Einstein, one of the greatest minds, an astrophysicist. And so all of this, and there's one message. Thankfully, there's not one garden, but two gardens. One garden where we said our will be done in a second garden that Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified, where he said your will be done as he prepared to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. So I want you to look at two verses with me as we close. Jesus said in John 3, 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I am so thankful that what Jesus offers is a regeneration of our nature, not merely forgiveness. Imagine just for a minute how horrible Christianity was if Christianity was merely forgiveness. Imagine being awakened and being aware of sin for the first time, knowing that sin is real, knowing that you're forgiven for that sin, but not being able to change. That would be horrible. Romans 5.1. And I'd like to invite the band and Hylene up here. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want you to imagine, here we are, broken and depraved, and yet God says in response, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to make you just as you have never sinned. And that word peace there, again, is shalom. The world is still broken, but God says between you and me, Everything is the way it ought to be. Everything is the way it ought to be. You're at peace with me. There is shalom. Here in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter, right? Right? Let's try that again. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have joy. We're going to have special meals. Actually, I'm not allowed to talk about what we're going to do. Carrie said, don't share it. But it's going to be great. And we're going to celebrate. But the message of Easter is strange. And the reason it is strange is because we have offended God. And the way God responds to being offended is so counterintuitive and hard to understand. Romans 4.25 says this, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to our life for our vindification. The one we've offended defends us in a plot twist out of love so that we could experience the ineffable, mysterious, deep love 
of God. So Hylian's going to share her story here to lead us into worship. Hello, everyone. You're going to make me cry. (laughs) Um, I'm going to read because that'll be easier. I was raised Catholic, and growing up, that meant I went to Catholic school. Although we didn't go to church much because my mom was divorced, and so she was excommunicated. I received a religious education, which encouraged me to have faith, but discouraged me from asking questions. In the midst of the rituals and traditions, I developed the belief that doing more good than bad equals salvation. Here began my performance-driven relationship with God. If I do the right thing, God is pleased with me, but if I make bad choices, he's angry. And I better confess my sin before I die, because otherwise I'll go to hell. Um, Comparing myself to my peers, I thought that I would make the cut. They were making worse decisions than me, so I should be okay. It was in college that I began feeling curious about the purpose of my life and uh, saddened saddened by the meaninglessness of my days. I started going to a campus ministry and became friends with one of the staff members who shared the gospel with me. I had believed that Jesus died for my sins, but I didn't know that that meant once and for all. I had believed that I could go to heaven, but I didn't know that it was because of anything I might do or not do. I finally understood that believing in Jesus is all that is required, that his death and resurrection meant the work is finished by him, for me, and anyone who believes it. I felt so much freedom and gratitude and a deep desire to share this with everyone and to just know more about God. Unfortunately, as I grew in my knowledge, I fell back into striving to please God by doing the right things working hard to prove that I am his child, fearing that my mistakes could be a sign that I wasn't really saved. I didn't realize that I was trying to save myself instead of resting in the knowledge that God has already saved me. I went through a miscarriage and eventually had two kids. I started struggling with depression and I felt like I completely lost myself. Not only did I lose my sense of identity, but I also felt lost in my relationship with God. I knew something was missing and broken and I just had no idea how to fix it. But God is faithful. He gently and kindly led me back to the gospel of grace, restored my faith, and reassured me of his love. He used someone very special to me to lead me to a women's wilderness retreat. Here I spent time practicing listening, which I didn't know was possible. Um, I prayed a lot to God, but I never took the time to hear what he had to say. I spent time in his creation, and that resulted in me praising him. I, um, did some, we did some worship and spent a lot of time being still and silent before him. In my journey with God, I fight hard to keep from falling back into my patterns of working to earn his favor. But every time I do, he picks me back up. He reminds me that he loves me and that he's pleased with me as I am. 
and that his spirit is inside me and he will change my desires and lead me to do all the good works he wants me to, not for my salvation, but for his glory. And that all I need to do is rest in the knowledge that he has gone before me and already saved me and his way is better than mine. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For it was only through this wonderful grace that we believed in him. Nothing we did could ever earn this salvation, for it was the gracious gift from God that brought us to Christ. So no one will ever be able to boast, for salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. And so um, I asked the band to do, the band, I'm in the band, um, I kind of suggested that we do this song called Defender, um, and I, I asked for it because it relates a lot to my story. I feel like it talks a lot about um, God going before us and that he's already won the battle. So we'll see if I get through it. <laughs> but he goes before us and um, he's already finished the work and um, we don't have to work anymore. And I can let go of control and stop trying to save myself and just rest in the knowledge that he already saved me.